From the KGOU studios, I'm Rebecca Cruz, Assistant Dean of the University of Oklahoma's College of International Studies. Welcome to Worldviews. This week we're speaking with researchers Paul Richards and Esther Makua about the 2014 Ebola epidemic in West Africa. Both Richards and Makua say the international community failed to consider local culture and history, weakening efforts to contain the virus. The international community had not paid enough attention to local voices. They had not consulted enough. They hadn't listened carefully enough. We were just telling these people what to do through megaphones, and we should have listened first. I'll talk with Paul Richards and Esther Makua about lessons learned during the 2014 Ebola epidemic in an extended interview in today's show. That's coming up after the latest news from NPR. This is Worldviews. I'm Rebecca Cruz, the Assistant Dean of the College of International Studies at the University of Oklahoma. Paul Richards is an anthropologist who recently wrote a book called Ebola, How a People's Science Helped End an Epidemic. In it, he credits local communities for mobilizing against the disease before it gained international attention. His colleague, Esther Makua, served on the Sierra Leone Anthropology Ebola Response Platform, which pushed for a locally-oriented response to the health crisis. Esther Makua and Paul Richards, welcome to Worldviews. Thank you. Well, you both are researchers and experts um, on many development issues, but one of the issues that you have recently investigated is the Ebola outbreak in Africa, specifically in Sierra Leone and the neighboring area. And for our listeners that may not remember entirely what happened, we're talking about an outbreak that around uh, 2014 uh, that started in, in that area and then did begin to, to spread a number of casualties, uh, many, many more infected. Can you give us a little bit of a, a reminder of, of what the situation was. Okay. Um, the, the epidemic first broke out in um, Guinea, uh, in an area bordering Sierra Leone and Liberia, so it quickly spread over the border. So that was uh, the end of 2013. It was spreading more or less undetected until the middle of 2014. And then it was reported by the governments in the region, the three governments, Liberia, Sierra Leone, Guinea, and the World Health Organization um, then de- declared a public health emergency of international concern in August 2014. Uh, by that stage, it was obvious that there was going to be a full-blown epidemic. Uh, the cases were doubling every week, um, and international alarm bells were, were sounded. Uh, one or two passengers uh, infected with Ebola uh, got on international flights and ended up in the United States or in, in Europe. Um, so the epidemic peaked in um, all three countries in the later part of 2014. Uh, numbers started to decline from the beginning of 2015, and um, control measures were intensified. So the epidemic then ended towards the end of 2015. What sort of control measures are we talking about here? What, what was done that finally was able to kind of get this all under control? One of the first things that happened was that local communities mobilized against the disease. Um, they were assisted by the authorities and by some international responders right from the beginning, but there was a, a, a big pushback in some of the uh, earliest affected rural areas because um, there hadn't yet been any international agreement that there was 
an Ebola epidemic. Um, a lot of people doubted, even in the capital cities, they were denying that there was uh, the epidemic was or the d disease was in the region. Um, all sorts of fanciful theories flew around about it, it was germ warfare experimentation by international governments or it was a political ruse to affect election results and so on. So it wasn't really being taken seriously until the middle of uh, 2014 by the national governments and by the international responders. So all the early response came really from local mobilization. Um, then from the middle of 2014, um, international resources started to be mobilized to um, protect against the further spread of the epidemic. And that meant that um, agencies like Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders, um, came in and built um, what are called Ebola treatment units, um, which were kind of biosafe facilities that cut off people who were infected with the disease, with cut them off from the rest of the community. And, low, and um, national quarantine measures were introduced, so the military forces became involved in the later part of 2014. Uh, there's still a big dispute as to which strategies worked and, and what contributed. Um, I, I personally think, and our own research shows, that the, the local responses were often very effective and should have been continued and built upon. Um, but the international community thought otherwise, and they came in and implemented forcible quarantine measures, for example, uh, using uh, military agents. Um, so there's still, I think, a, a debate about how the epidemic was ended, and it could be that it was just a natural burnout, um, because we don't yet know about acquired immunity. Um, there's no strong data. There's some suggestions that people that were in contact with the disease developed natural immunity without developing symptoms, but it, it's very unclear as to how significant a factor that is. But if it was widespread, it could have led to a natural burnout of the epidemic. So the, the curve of the epidemic started to fall uh, early in 2015, and now people have more or less forgotten about it. Um, internationally and, and I'm afraid locally as well. Well, and Esther, uh, Paul mentioned some of these uh, rural communities and community uh, organizations that got together. What sort of things were they doing? What, what, uh, what was the community response in some of these areas? Well, uh, they had um, community, well, how, what's the name? Um, tax force. Tax forces. They had a look at tax force, people who they were, in a sense, we are and doing the barrier and telling people that they should not be in contact with people there. We are telling them what not to do during Ebola when somebody is sick, that they should report and phone or something like that. They, they, they were, let me say, um, looking, let me say, the community themselves, they were watching each other. If somebody is sick, they have to go and tell the chief, and the chief has to go and tell the tax force people and so forth. So the community also, we are involved. Because they know each other, and they know who's yeah. in their community. Yeah, they know who, yeah. Those who, yeah, they, they know their neighbors and so forth. And if there's any new person in the community, so the, the chief will 
or do you if i have a stranger i have to go and inform the chief that my sister has come to visit me and so forth if i don't do it there's a fine and so forth or my neighbor will go and tell the chief or my neighbor that uh, the next neighbor that oh esther has caught somebody who is visiting her and so forth what is happening something like that so what was the response among some of these communities when the international community finally uh, started acting was there some conflict there or what was the response People we are people we are scared uh, because uh, well let me say most of these international people never went into the field in safe. I don't have uh, a data I don't have data on that. But from my own experience, when I went into the field, I never saw um, foreign people in the community. They only hired uh, this tax force people, local people of people from another town coming into this, and that one also brought some clash because people we are telling me that why are they bringing people outside to come and treat her or something like that to tell us this. Why can't they take our local brothers? They know us. They know our language. For instance, if uh, they were taking somebody like a Timini person, bringing the person into Mende land, and the Timini person couldn't speak the, men, the, the language of the Mende people. So there was some uh, disgruntlement between the local people, something like that. <laughs> You're listening to my conversation with researchers Paul Richard and Esther Makua. After the break, we'll discuss what, if any, lessons were learned from the 2014 Ebola epidemic. Will they be taken into consideration next time there's a global health scare? I'm Rebecca Cruz, and you're listening to Worldviews. This is Worldviews. I'm Rebecca Cruz, the Assistant Dean of the College of International Studies at the University of Oklahoma. Today's guests are Paul Richard and Esther Makua. They are researchers who have criticized the response to the Ebola epidemic of 2014 as it spread from Guyana to the neighboring countries of Sierra Leone and Liberia, killing over 11,000 people. What, what are the lessons that we should learn? Perhaps some lessons about the uh, interaction between the, com- the local communities and the international communities, but other lessons about how this sort of uh, health issue spreads and how it's contained. What, what should we be thinking about today? I think those are the lessons that need to be to be learned, and to some extent they have been learned. I was listening to uh, Dr. Anders Nordstrom, who was at the time the World Health Organization country director for Sierra Leone. Um, he was speaking at a conference uh, a few weeks ago that I attended, and he was very clear that, uh, w- that the international community had not paid enough attention to local voices. They had not consulted enough. They hadn't listened carefully enough. Uh, he said we were just telling these people what to do through megaphones, and we should have listened first. So I, I think that message has uh, been accepted. Um, And if there were any further Ebola epidemics in Africa, then I think they would be a lot better handled because these lessons have been learnt. One lesson that may not have been learnt so well um, because it relates to local social knowledge is why you want to engage local actors in certain key activities. So burial was a very sensitive issue. And... um, the initial response was that the international community would train um, safe burial teams. Um, so they were given protective um, gear to wear and they were um, taught how to handle corpses safely um, so that they were not a risk to other people. Um, the training was good and the equipment was effective, 
but they recruited people and trained them in towns and they brought them out into the country. So what the people in the villages said was, we don't know these people. And if you're burying someone, you should really have a social relationship with that person. You sure. should know the consequences of their death. Mm -hmm. And then they said what Esther's just said, why don't you train our local people? Because they saw that the people they recruited in town were very similar in terms of educational background and so on and so forth. It's just that they were strangers and they were not locally intimate with the people. They said if they'd been local people, they would have done it much more respectfully and carefully. They would have communicated with us. We would have been able to devise some kind of local burial ceremony. Even though we couldn't actually handle the corpse, we could have all done it together. We could have prayed together and so on and so forth. So uh, that element that they were bringing outsiders and strangers, and often because they were coming from outside, they were very delayed. And if you have someone who's died, and it's a hot climate, as, as, you, as you must understand, um, you can't wait three or four days for a burial team to turn up. So communities took their own decisions at that point, and maybe that actually spread the disease further, but it was because the thing was not being organized well enough at the local level. Where they did organize local burial teams, it worked much better, and, and people cooperated and they reported early if they got a, a death in the household and so on. But where it was, the, the, the alienation came because the people that came from 50 or 100 miles away were, were not known to the communities, and they, they were both afraid, but they were also angry that they were not being involved in the response. So the, and also, they were, people were telling me that they, and they were young people, they are young youth, they were youths. And in Africa, a big person, a big person is an elder person, a societal person, uh, age 70 and so forth. So you have to give them the last respect. You cannot uh, allow a young, a youth, let me say 15-year-old boy to just come and take part in that, in, in, in his funeral or something like that. So they, we are expecting them, let them be involved. So they say, why can't they train us? They say, we can do it because we, we, we are seeing them. Let them just give us the equipment. We can do it. We can give respect respect to our, to our fathers, to our mothers, because that's the only time that we have to give them their last respect. So th those, are, that, those are one of the things people, people we are really against, the, 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 the tax force and when they, we are bringing people into the community to do this uh, type of activities. Right, to, to the need to be very sensitive to the cultural realities and, and yeah. the this very seriousness of the situation and rituals and those sorts of things. Uh, so this is a, a issue. Hopefully, we do not experience an Ebola outbreak again. But hopefully, we have learned some of the lessons there. And it seems like there's two things that that occurred. We had a bit of a conflict between the international community and the local community. But it also sounds like there is a divide there between the rural communities and the city communities. I thought it was very interesting that you pointed out that things were happening in the rural communities and people weren't believing that mm -hmm. this was happening. Is that uh, something that was the case with the Ebola outbreak, but also the case with other? issues, this divide with the, the rural and urban communities? Well, I think it's a long-term issue in uh, both Sierra Leone and Liberia. I don't know Guinea so well, so it, 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 but I, I think also there's evidence it is a problem in Guinea, particularly with the people that live in the forest who are very remote from the capital Conakry. 
um, and they're a different ethnic background and they tend to distrust everything that comes from the capital city. Um, they, they, they were even at war with them, uh, in effect, in the, in the late 1990s. And the Guinea government was bombing the forest um, communities. So there was a lot of hostility in all three countries in rural areas to things that came from the capital. And that, that's a kind of long-term historical thing. The capitals have always been, as it were, somewhat predatory on the interior rural communities. And that's because of colonial, colonialism. Um, these capital cities were gateways to French and British colonialism in the case of Guinea and Sierra Leone. Um, you could say that the African-American um, colonizers of Liberia were a sort of colonial group as well. So Monrovia has a similar relationship to the interior. And there's a lot of hostility and distrust. And it was recapitulated in the civil wars of the 1990s. And uh, people would sit in the capital city and they say, oh, we hear rumors over radio that there's, there's a rebel movement in the far-flung part of uh, eastern Sierra Leone or in northwestern Liberia. And then they say, but it, you know, this, this is just sort of these local people, they're always fighting each other, it's not serious and so on. And it took for several years before people in Freetown were serious about the civil war in the, their own country. And when Ebola started, they said, ah, it's just the same thing all over again. It's coming, from, it's coming from the same area. It's just these barbarians. Okay, you know, let them get on with it. And so that, that really was a problem, an internal problem. The international community probably didn't know well enough that they had to step carefully around that, that issue and build alliances with local communities. So it wasn't a good idea to be organizing everything from the city and trying to take it out. Um, but when I've talked to people in, in the international response about why they did that, then it was partly logistics, um, but it was also partly safety. So they were, oh. they were worried about going into the interior because they didn't know really how Ebola spread and how dangerous it would be and so on. So they wanted to do the training in places that seemed to them safe. So they did it in the, the, the capital cities or the larger provincial towns. And that created, that, that fell into this trap that the city is often alienated from the rural areas and there's a sort of legacy of histor historical bitterness. In Guinea, it became so bad that a team of Ebola responders were actually attacked and some of them were killed by villagers because they were so hostile to the, the, the very notion of outsiders coming in and dealing with their problems and forcing them into quarantine and stopping them forcibly from burying their dead and so forth. Uh, so, Paul, I did want to ask you, you mentioned that uh, Ebola came to the United States. I believe we had a, a case uh, not too far from here uh, in Texas, or at least a scare in Texas as well as elsewhere. You actually talked to the CDC about some of this, advised the CDC. What was your advice to them, or how did you suggest that the United States deal with this issue? Okay, this was in, um, I think it was August 2014. So we're right at the kind of crux of the issue when the international community is now beginning to focus and CDC was gearing up its, its response. It had responded earlier, but now it was clear that with the declaration, international declaration of a public health emergency of international concern. That's a kind of technical instrument that is in the power of the United Nations to declare, and then every, everyone has to pay attention. So um, it was at that point that um, my friend who was advising the president of Sierra Leone, he's an American, um, Daniel Cohen, um, he and I were in daily contact over this, and he was supplying technical advice to the uh, State House in Sierra Leone on how to interpret the molecular evidence and so on. 
And uh, he'd been talking to me daily about social issues. So he was convinced that the social issues were missing from the understanding of the epidemic. And because he works from time to time with CDC, he had contacts in CDC. So he said, can I arrange for Paul Richards to talk to uh, a CDC group that are responsible for the Ebola response? So we had a, about an hour long uh, Skype uh, telephone conversation. And um, I focused on the social issues. I tried to explain about, for example, kinship relations, the issue that uh, the women move from their own village to their husband's villages, but that marriage is a process. It doesn't happen overnight. It's not that you go and get married and then you're married. It's something that happens over 30, 40 years. It's an obligation. Um, to, in return for the gift of a wife, you take responsibility for your wife's parents. So you have to do work um, or send money and, and food and so on for um, the in-laws, uh, for the father-in-law, the mother-in-law. Um, if you don't do those things, you're not completely married. So uh, a Mende woman will often say, if you ask her, are you married? She says, time will tell, because she doesn't know. The marriage is not yet complete because all the responsibilities have not been discharged. If you don't um, fulfill those responsibilities, you don't have the right to bury your wife. Um, the body of the wife has to go back to the family, to the brothers or the father, and they will arrange for the burial, which potentially means that, that bodies are traveling from village to village, and if these are Ebola-affected bodies, they could be very dangerous. And in large number. And in large numbers. Uh, so we had, to, we, we had to get, I mean, that's just one example of, of why the, the social arrangements of these communities really are crucial for understanding how to control Ebola. So it was examples like that that we talked about during that hour. And the CDC people thanked me at the end, and they said, well, you know, you've opened our eyes. We, we didn't know about these things because they're all epidemiologists. They knew about Ebola. They knew far, far, far more than I knew about Ebola. But they didn't know about the social arrangements that might affect the spread of the virus. So um, that information increasingly was sort of pumped in to the international response. And I think it got better and better as time went on because they started to understand that there were these complex social issues that they couldn't just simply trample over or disregard. They had to work with the grain of what uh, the way that people are organized. Well, I could talk to you for hours. This is fascinating work that you're doing, but we really appreciate you uh, spending some time with us. Okay, thanks. It's been nice talking to you. You've been listening to my conversation with Paul Richards and Esther Makua about the international response to the Ebola epidemic of 2014 and what the international community can learn from it. If you have any comments on this discussion, you can leave them in the comments section of kgou.org. You can also like us, follow us, and interact with us on Twitter at WorldviewsKGOU. Worldviews is produced in partnership between KGOU and the College of International Studies at the University of Oklahoma. Katie Holland prepares our research, Caroline Halter edited this interview, and Sam Dupree produced the show. I'm Rebecca Cruz, and this is Worldviews. Worldviews.